The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Welcome to Spectator Out Loud with me, Lyndon Kemcaren. Each week we choose our favourite pieces from the magazine and ask our writers to read them aloud. Coming up on the podcast this week, Katie Balls discusses the SNP's annual conference and asks, what will it take to hold the party together if things get much tougher over the next 12 months? Christina Lamb goes to Ukraine only to be told that she's at the wrong war as events unfold rapidly in the Middle East. And Sam Leith chats to the man who heads up the tiny publishing house that regularly churns out Nobel Prize winners. First, it's Katie Balls. The SNP party conference in Aberdeen this week wasn't the nationalist jamboree activists had hoped for. Even though it was Hims Yusuf's first conference as party leader, several of his MSPs stayed away, and the main hall was half empty most of the time. The key word was flat, says one attendee. It was Nicola Sturgeon, Yousef's predecessor, who attracted the most excitement when she made a cameo appearance on Monday. The former first minister had to deny she was the Liz Truss of the SNP, a reference to the former prime minister's attempts to upstage Rishi Sunak. You got to hand it to her for the hubris, said one unimpressed nationalist. At least Yousef has won praise for his handling of the events unfolding in Israel and Palestine. The first minister, whose in-laws are trapped in Gaza, met with the mother of a victim of the Hamas attack and emphasised his support for Scotland's Jewish community. But none of this changes the fundamentals facing his party. In the past month, the SNP has lost the Rutherglen Hamilton by-election to Labour and one SNP MP has defected to the Scottish Conservatives. Then there's the ongoing Police Scotland investigation into possible fundraising fraud. Of the three issues, it's Scottish Labour that's the greatest concern to the nationalists. The Scottish Labour candidate for Rutherglen and Hamilton won twice the number of votes of his SNP rival. Polls suggest Labour will overtake the Nationalists as the largest party in Scotland next year. And if the swing were replicated in the next general election, Labour could win around 40 of Scotland's 57 seats. However, given that by-elections tend to encourage protest voting, Labour MPs feel a more realistic target is around 25 seats. Labour victories in Scotland would make Starmer's path to number 10 much simpler. Peter Kellner, the former YouGov president, calculates that a good result for Scottish Labour and tactical voting elsewhere could mean Starmer only requires a 5% lead in the popular vote for a Commons majority. Current polls put him 20 points ahead. Already, private conversations are going on in SNP circles about what will happen if Yusuf can't turn things around before next year's election. The First Minister describes his party as slightly down, but definitely not out. But even a slight decrease in the vote share spells trouble for the SNP. Their problem is that when they have 45% of the vote evenly spread across Scotland, they win everything, says one seasoned Unionist. When they have 35% and Unionists rally round their principal opponent, they can win virtually nothing. It's not just Labour licking their lips at the idea of SNP problems. The Scottish Conservatives also believe they can benefit. Party briefings suggest that on a good day, the Tories could hope to win 16 seats in total. 
Yusuf's new Scottish independence strategy depends on stopping this collapse of Westminster seats. Sturgeon used to say that the general election was a de facto referendum, but this stance led to a rebellion from SNP MPs, who feared that the cost of living crisis was likely to be a bigger priority for voters next year than independence. In a bid to find a compromise, the SNP's independence pledge has been scaled down. The party will push for another referendum if they win a majority of the 57 seats up for play. This will allow SNP MPs to say they are focusing on cost of living issues while also keeping the party's base happy on independence. Not everyone is impressed with the fudge. Yusuf's argument that there will be a mandate for independence, even if the SNP wins considerably fewer seats than it did at the last election, has raised questions about expectations. It shows the party is braced for losses, says one Scottish Labour politician. Even if the party does win a majority of Scottish seats, it is unlikely that much would change. Whether it's Sunak or Keir Starmer in number 10, neither would grant a referendum. While support for independence remains pretty static at around 48%, support for the SNP is falling, which is why senior figures in the party are already wondering what will happen if there is a disappointing election result. Many believe Yusuf could be pushed out. Himza will need to carry the can and I predict a new first minister next year says a Scottish Tory. If Sturgeon is Yusuf's trust, then his former leadership rival Kate Forbes is his Sunak. Forbes, the Highland MSP, is one of a handful of rebellious nationalists who are opening up a new front against the SNP leadership in Holyrood. When her colleague Fergus Ewing lost the SNP whip after a string of backbench rebellions, Forbes stood alongside him as he addressed the media. She explained she didn't think he should have to stand alone. Forbes chose to stay away from the SNP conference, citing a pre-arranged trip to the USA. Given that the conference happens the same month every year, however, few were persuaded that the diary clash was entirely coincidental. Even some of Yusuf's supporters believe Forbes could make a comeback. The First Minister is aware that she poses a threat. He used his leader's speech at conference to try to set out a growth plan that is friendly to business, which had been Forbes's policy platform during the leadership contest. If Forbes were to take over, though, she would face the same question. Can the SNP hold together? Holyrood's Greens, who are in a coalition with the SNP, say they would not work with her. If the prospect of independence recedes further, then it becomes hard to see what could unite the party. The current crop of nationalists are divided on gender issues, taxation, and the best way to try to secure independence. It will become the tartan Tories versus the progressives, predicts a party figure. If Yusuf leads his party to disappointment next year, an SNP reckoning will soon follow. That was Katie Balls. Next is Christina Lamb. The first indication that this was a literary festival like no other came with the request to provide proof-of-life questions in case of kidnap. I've been to some unusual festivals. Earlier this year, I found myself discussing war rape, ancient and modern, with the classicist Mary Beard, on a barefoot island in the Maldives, and had some unusual festival encounters, such as the woman who asked me to sign a book to her dead husband, adding that he was reading it when he died. This, however, was my first festival in a war zone. There was a polite warning from the Lviv Book Forum organisers, if there is an airstrike, we will interrupt the event. It's all part of the famous resilience of Ukrainians, determined in the face of Russian aggression, that life must go on. Yet within days of arriving, it had already become the other war. 
Breaking news pings on our phones telling of the slaughter and abduction of young and old in Israel by Hamas terrorists. Even in a country itself under brutal invasion, it was sickening. A reminder, too, of the Palestinian issue that in my early days as a correspondent 25 years ago was the most urgent foreign crisis, but one we had all somehow started pretending had gone away. I had travelled across the border from Poland with my fellow participant, Dr. Rachel Clark, a palliative care doctor and writer whose impassioned tweets from NHS front lines I followed during COVID. The night before we travelled, I'd watched Partygate, the jaw-dropping Channel 4 docudrama about Downing Street parties in the pandemic, so asked if she'd seen it. I couldn't bear to, she replies. At that time, I was the one having to tell people on the phone they couldn't say goodbye to dying loved ones because of the rules. It was a long journey to Lviv, and we discussed the struggle to get anyone in government to care about palliative care, which is two-thirds funded through charities. Imagine then Ukraine in the midst of war with only a handful of state-funded hospices. So Rachel, along with the neurosurgeon Henry Marsh, has set up the charity Hospice Ukraine. She posts social media videos from the border to promote it. The festival's apt venue is the Gunpowder Tower, one of Lviv's few remaining 16th century fortifications. Can there be happiness after war is the first panel I attend. The room is packed, mostly with young women. The men are away fighting. The answer seems to be no, and there is palpable anger when a Croatian writer apparently equates the grief of a bereaved Russian mother with that of a Ukrainian. At a discussion on a Marshall Plan for Ukraine, news breaks of one of the deadliest attacks of the 19-month war. Russian missiles have slammed into a cafe in Hroza, near Kharkiv, killing 52, that's one in six in the tiny village. The attack leads some to question how anyone can begin to talk reconstruction, but it does not make the global headlines it would have done a year ago. Ukraine fatigue hangs heavy over the festival, not helped by the recent election of a pro-Putin leader in Slovakia and the chaos in the US Congress. How to find the right language to talk about war is the festival's main theme. Some Ukrainian writers say it is impossible to write, that now is the time to fight and have headed to the trenches. Others find poetry better at capturing the moment. There is more being written than ever. Meanwhile, many of us are discovering Ukrainian novelists like Andrei Kulkov, author of The Magical Death and the Penguin. Kulkov writes in Russian, his first language, though most Ukrainian bookshops now won't sell Russian-language books. After Kurkov appeared on a panel in Toronto with the exiled Russian journalist Masha Gessen, some Ukrainian authors began a campaign and the book forum briefly took down the page advertising its opening session, a recorded interview between Kurkov and the American novelist Jonathan Franson. It was quickly restored, prompting bafflement when Kurkov complained at Cheltenham that he had been cancelled. Aren't things complicated enough without fighting between us? asked Sofia Cheliak, the programme director. My panel was remembering Victoria Amelina, poet, writer and friend, killed in July by a Russian missile strike on the Ria Pizza restaurant in Kramatorsk, aged just 37. I was at the festival because of her. She had invited me and promised to show me her favourite places in her hometown. Instead, I visit her grave at the Lichakiv Cemetery. Friends have placed a pot of pens, as well as flowers. 
It's hard not to cry as we discuss with Victoria's friends how the invasion prompted her to train as a war crimes investigator. By then, the other journalists are heading off to Israel. You're at the wrong war, said my editor. Can the world deal with another major conflagration? The title of the festival's final session seems strangely apt. I would laugh to keep from crying. That was Christina Lamb. And finally, here's Sam Leith. Hi, Jacques, I say, as the publisher of Fitzgeraldo Editions appears on my Zoom screen with his Franz Howell's facial hair. Thanks for making the time. I explain, apologetically but cheerily, that I'm going to be asking him to give his basic How I Keep Winning Nobel Prizes spiel, at which I say he's probably by now pretty well practised. Hmm, he says, I'm not sure about that. I'll do my best. Though he's grateful for what it's done for his tiny publishing company, you sense that Jacques Testard probably finds it a bit irksome that it takes the ephemeral showbiz razzle of the Swedish Academy to bring the experimental writing he publishes anything much in the way of public attention. But there again, the Nobel thing is hard to ignore. The tiny highbrow press that Testard started less than 10 years ago with a £70,000 loan, enough, he says, he calculated at the time, to publish 10 books and keep him alive for two years, now has seven employees. Over that decade, no fewer than four of its authors have caught the Nobel Prize for Literature. Svetlana Alexievich, Olga Tokarchuk, Annie Arnaud, and now Jon Foss. John Foss, I say. Jon Fosser, Testard says, without expressly correcting me. I remind every author that we publish, whenever they make it onto the list of a prize, that prizes are terrible, he says. Unless you win. I think that's quite a useful way to think about them. For us, obviously, prizes have been huge, and the Nobel Prize is especially transformative in terms of booksellers and visibility, but also in terms of giving a boost not just to the authors who have won them, but to the rest of the list. I think, at least compared to prize culture in France, we're not corrupt. There's at least a broadly ethical way of running literary prizes. Anyway, he's doing something right. Fitzcarraldo was named, with one knowingness, for the Werner Herzog movie in which a madman tries to haul a steamship over a mountain in the Amazon jungle. When he started it, Testard, then in his mid-twenties, had abandoned plans for a PhD in history, because he found it boring, and bounced around in various internships, a French publishing house, Farrar Strauss Giroux in New York, the Paris Review, a stint at the Sunday Times, before co-founding the White Review as a UK version of a European literary magazine. I realised quite quickly in the early years of the White Review that I wanted to be an editor and edit books, he says. After being turned down for all the jobs he applied for, overqualified, and a couple of years working on another small publisher, Notting Hill Editions, he launched his Fitzcarraldo in 2014. Fitzcarraldo has always published about half-and-half fiction and non-fiction, half-and-half translated work and English-language originals. They've published Joshua Cohen, Brian Dillon, Claire Louise Bennett, Adam Mars-Jones, Ben Lerner and Joanna Pocock. But it's the foreign-language material that has brought them most attention. Testard, who is himself trilingual in English, French and Spanish, discovered that for European greats, there wasn't much competition at the point of acquiring these books for an English market. When he first acquired Svetlana Alexievich, he was the only bidder on the rights, despite her six-figure sales on the continent. I couldn't have built this list in any other Western European country, he says. All the writers we publish at Fitzgeraldo in translation, and I'm not just talking about the Nobels, but people like Matthias Enard or Guadeloupe Nittel, have the best publishers in France, Spain, Germany, Italy. It's only in the Anglophone world that there was this blind spot. 
I think there's an arrogance in Anglophone publishing, not just in the UK, but in America as well, that with English being the dominant language, we don't necessarily need to look outside of its borders. There may be also a kind of legacy of imperialism. Traditionally, the world has come into English literature in the form of Commonwealth writers writing in English. Perhaps there was a sense that with the Booker Prize, that was kind of enough. There's also this idea that publishing translation is more expensive, is riskier, and doesn't sell. I think the fact that Fitzcarraldo is on the brink of its 10th anniversary and has four Nobel Prize winners is proof otherwise. It is possible to make it work and to take risks on books of the highest literary quality in translation. Unlike most UK publishing, whose interest in foreign language material tends to be pretty siloed. Scandinavian crime, Latin American magic realism, Japanese whimsy. Testard committed to seeking out ambitious writing. I asked him about a recent viral article declaring the death of literary fiction as a category. He read the piece, but says, It's a useful signifier for us as publishers to say we publish literary books. He alludes approvingly to Robert Colasso's idea that a small publisher's list should be a sort of work of art in itself, a constellation in which you could read your way through it and sort of see all these connections and echoes and affinities emerge. Returning to our blind spot about foreign fiction, I wonder if the narrow UK literary scene is down only to what Milan Kundera calls the parochialism of large nations, a complacent sense that there's plenty to be going on within the English language, or is it also linked to the Kingsley Amis anti-intellectual strand in our culture that instinctively mistrusts formal experimentation and fears above all else being called pretentious? I think maybe a bit of both, says Testard. I think the parochialism thing does resonate. You see it in bookshops. Despite the recent boom, if we can call it that, in translated literature, in Britain, translated fiction is almost considered a genre in and of itself. Then the formal innovation thing. I'm trying to think of who the equivalent authors might be in the English language. Someone like Tom McCarthy has been, you know, received with some suspicion in Britain. As has Adam Thirlwell, and they are both very much writing in the tradition of high European modernism. Even leaving aside the occasional thunderbolt from Sweden, Testard experience seems to offer the hope that British book buyers aren't an irredeemably philistine lot. Fitzcarraldo's quality-first attitude is backed by shrewd branding that imitates the austerity of European literary publishing. Non-fiction is in plain paper covers with blue lettering on a cream background. Fiction is cream lettering on blue. A row of Fitzcarraldo's on your bookshelf is today's 30-something intellectual, what a row of white picador spines was to one in the early 1990s. We have managed to build up a loyal readership, Testard says. People do follow our books in the way that they might follow a record label. They'll buy a book without necessarily knowing who the author is. What that's meant, with the successes we've had on the prize side, is that we've been able to increase the basic print run for every book that we do. Two or maybe three years ago, we would do 2,000 copies for every book as standard, unless it was a prize winner. Now it's a minimum 4,000. And most of the books we do reprint within six to nine months. So I guess it's quite heartening. Everything does pretty well. Some things do very well. I think new novelists in the UK sell an average of something like 600 copies each. I don't think we have a single book that sold less than a 1,000 copies in the history of Fitzcarraldo. He adds, In the nine years that we've been around, I think the International Booker Prize has made a big difference. When we started, it was still around 3 or 4% of books sold in the UK each year were translated. Now it's 6 or 7, and the 25 to 34 demographic are reading more translation than any other age group, which I think is heartening, and speaks to the fact that a generation that voted overwhelmingly to stay in Europe is more interested in what's happening outside of the borders of the UK. So, improbably enough, that steamship is making its way through the jungle. Has he had corporate publishers offering to buy the company or fill his pockets with gold to come and run a list? You bet he has. I have had conversations with people because I guess it's always interesting to have the conversation. But no, he says, I'm not tempted at all. 
I would like to run Fitzcarraldo as an independent publisher for the rest of my life. I think I'm interested in publishing as an intellectual project, as pretentious as that sounds. And that was Sam Leith rounding off this week's edition of Spectator Out Loud. If you like these articles and fancy more of the same, then why not pick up a copy of the magazine? I'm Lyndon Kemcaran. Thanks so much for listening. And please do join us again next week. Bye.